You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Peter Alagona is a professor of environmental studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's an environmental historian, historian of science, conservation scientist, and nature culture geographer. His work explores what happens when humans share space and resources, their habitats, with other species, how we interact with non-human creatures and how we make sense of these interactions, why we fight so much about them, and what we can learn from them, and how we might use these lessons to foster a more just, peaceful, humane, and sustainable society. Most of his research is focused on human interactions with wildlife in North America. A second area of interest, though, involves developing creative interdisciplinary, collaborative, and mixed methods for studying ecological change over multiple time periods and scales. Today I talk with Peter about grizzlies, their future reintroduction in the state of California, and some of the most fascinating grizzly facts in history I've ever had the pleasure of discussing. Stay tuned because even if you fancy yourself a brown bear aficionado, there's a good chance there might be something in this chat that you didn't know about grizzlies. Peter, thanks so much for showing up to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Jack, it's a pleasure to be with you. What's been going on lately? Uh, lately, I've been focusing a lot on grizzly bears, a project that I really started in earnest in 2016 with a group here at UC Santa Barbara, just doing really a variety of research projects, trying to better understand the history and ecology and geography of grizzly bears in California. But over the last uh, year or so, it's really picked up. And uh, now we're actually, we're talking about a potential future reintroduction and rewilding project. And so it's really great to have a, a chance to, to talk with you about that now. Some of your listeners may know that grizzly bears used to be really common in California, incredibly common. The, the estimate is that on the eve of the gold rush, so in 1848, let's say, there were something like up to 10,000 grizzly bears in California. At that time, the human population of this state had declined from something like 350,000 prior to European colonization down to about 110,000. And on the eve of the gold rush, there was one grizzly for about every 11 people here in California, which is mind boggling. The ratio now is 40 million people to zero grizzly bears. And it's been, we've had zero grizzly bears in the state since about 1924. That was the last credible sighting of a grizzly bear in California that happened on the West Slope of Sequoia National Park in the spring of 24. And then there were one or two other possible sightings after that, but that was pretty much it. And so this animal that had been incredibly common, this flagship species, this amazing, spectacular animal in California, went from being incredibly abundant to disappearing over the course of about one human lifespan, about 75 years or so. And so since then, the story has basically been that this was inevitable, that grizzly bears were going to disappear because of what California was going to become, and it would be impossible to ever bring them back. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people still really believe that today. But the work that, that my group has done over the past about eight years or so has really surprised all of us, including me. And I got to say, Jack, this for me has been a lesson in, or a journey maybe in humility because almost everything I thought I knew about these animals before I began the project turned out to be wrong in some ways. And in some cases, almost exactly wrong. 
And so it's been an incredible learning experience. But among the things we've discovered is that uh, these bears weren't just limited to coastlines and foothills. They were pretty much everywhere in the state. They lived in almost all of California's diverse ecosystems except the hot deserts. They, they lived closely with indigenous people and actually occupied many of the same kinds of ecological niches for a long time. And they lived in a variety of different ways in this state's really diverse habitats. So up in the Alpine, down in the oak woodlands, in the valleys, along the coastlines, almost a microcosm of the global uh, range of niches that brown bears fill in Europe, Asia, and North America. And so the question comes up, they've been gone for a century, where, where would they come back? And so I think the first thing you just got to recognize is that they used to be almost everywhere, except in places like Death Valley, Mojave Desert. Today, of course, though, many of their best habitats have, have disappeared to uh, development, urban development in part, but also agriculture uh, and other forms of habitat loss and fragmentation. But one of the things our group has done is we've done a, a really five-year-long deep dive to try to understand which of the potential or which of the past grizzly habitats remain and which of those that remain could actually provide some habitat for these animals in the future if they were brought back. And so we did this project that's it's not published yet. It's, it's getting close. We've been working on it for a long time, where we basically put together several different modeling approaches to try to answer that question. And when we put them all together, we were shocked at the map that came out of it that showed a huge area of potential suitable habitat for grizzlies in California, including large areas of the Northwest forest. So the Klamath Mountains, Trinity Alps, places like that, if your listeners uh, are familiar with those areas. Large portions of the Sierra Nevada, including in particular the Southern Sierra, which has this Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, bunch of wilderness areas. That was the last place where grizzly bears were seen in the state, in Sequoia uh, uh, National Park. And then also in Southwestern California, in the Los Padres backcountry in the Sespe Condor Sanctuary and in the, the wilderness areas of the Los Padres National Forest also light up on our maps as having a lot of potential suitable habitat. I think one interesting thing about that, just to wrap this up, is that those areas are not areas that we normally picture grizzly bears living in today. Areas like chaparral-covered mountainsides and, and foothills that get up to 100 degrees in the summertime and in many years lack a lot of flowing surface water. But those are areas that we know that grizzlies thrived in the past because we have a lot of historical sightings of grizzly bears in those areas. As a matter of fact, in, in some parts of California, they used to call the grizzly the chaparral bear. And so all of these areas contain potential suitable habitat. There's no um, shortage of high quality ecological habitat for grizzlies in California. The question is, could they really live in a state with all of these, these people and could people learn to coexist with having a bear, like a brown bear in their midst? It's almost getting to the point where you couldn't blame somebody for thinking there's no way grizzlies can live anywhere without a waterfall where they can catch salmon in their mouths. Because whenever anybody uses an image of a grizzly bear, it's 99% at Brooks Falls. And you're talking about all these different places that grizzly can and and has lived. I'm thinking people are starting to maybe forget about that fact. When I think about it, I'm thinking 
north, Montana and Glacier and places like that, really extraordinarily wild places, like where grizzlies in my mind fit still, because I know we need a lot of space for these guys. In my entire lifetime, it's been like that. The grizzly map hasn't changed that much from when I was born long ago. (laughs) So maybe I should also define a term here. Grizzly bear is a kind of colloquial term in a way for most of the brown bears in North America. There are brown bears in Alaska that are technically not grizzly bears. Those are the kind of salmon bears that you see those really familiar photos of and videos of that you were just talking about a minute ago, places like Brooks Falls. They're from a little bit different lineage. They Many of them have more polar bear DNA in them. But brown bears themselves occur widely throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. Most of them live in Asia, in places like Russia. But, and this is going to come as a surprise probably to many of your listeners, but Europe, which is a continent that has way more people, more than twice the number of people as the, as the United States, no real wilderness areas, very densely populated, has something like between 12 and 15 times the number of brown bears as we do in the lower 48 U.S. states. We've got about 2,000 here in the contiguous U.S. right now. And depending on how you draw the lines of Europe, what counts as Europe, there's something like between 22 and 25,000 brown bears in Europe. That's the same species as what we call grizzlies, a different subspecies from a different genetic lineage, but the same species. And those animals are living often in places where there are lots of people. I have a, a research site where I study human bear coexistence in Bulgaria. Bulgaria is a country that is about the size of the Sierra Nevada in total in acreage. It's got about 6 million people uh, down from about 9 million around uh, the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there are something like between 600 and 1,000 brown bears living in Bulgaria. And so in those areas, these are animals that are living on the outskirts of villages in intensively managed forests in between towns and uh, little ranches and vacation areas. And so this is, a, this is a place where people have learned to live with these animals in a very different way. So even the idea that they need gigantic wild spaces, I think, is a very North American view. It's a very cultural view. It's conditioned by history. And it's, it has less to do with science, with biology, and with the bears themselves than the way that we uh, often perceive them. Another interesting thing about thinking about these animals in other places is that they do live in Mediterranean-style ecosystems in Europe, very similar to the ones in coastal California, like in my backyard here uh, in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties in the Los Padres National Forest. I think you're absolutely right that people today picture these animals in cold, northern, remote places, high mountains, remote Alaskan coastlines, And in some cases, those are really good grizzly habitats. I had an opportunity last summer to go out and be on the beach in Katmai National Park, not far from Brooks Falls, and see bears there foraging on the beach and in the tide pools and fishing for salmon. And it was marvelous. And it was really fantastic bear habitat. But these animals can can live almost anywhere in a temperate climate where people will allow them. And that might come as a surprise to folks who are used to thinking about them differently today, But thinking about them in this way actually opens up many more possibilities for their future than confining them in real space, but also in our minds to places like that. Okay, so one more bear 
is it really much of a separate bear, the Kodiak? How, what are the differences we're talking about there? Just so, you know, we're on the topic of the different subspecies and things. That one comes to mind is that other outstanding, uh, I believe, larger than average, your average bear. Yeah, sure. So for your listeners out there who are really wonky and into things like taxonomy and systematics, I'll just give you a little crash course on this because it's super fascinating. So right now, there are something like 200,000 brown bears worldwide. That number has probably been roughly halved in the last couple hundred years. Their range has been halved. They've lost most of the southern portion of their range. But of the bears that exist uh, today, there are 15 named subspecies of brown bears. But those subspecies are based on where they live, people's measurements of bones and pelts and things like that in museums. They're not really based on the genetics. Beginning in the mid-1990s, when mitochondrial DNA tests became much more available, people started looking at brown bear genetics. And what was determined pretty quickly is that there were really only probably six true lineages of brown bears worldwide. And that that only one or two of those lineages actually matched up in any significant way with the 15 named subspecies. So we still have 15 named subspecies, but they don't really reflect what we now know about the, the genetics. If you look at the bears that occur in, in North America, most of them are part of clade. So a clade is a genetic lineage, clade four, and that, that includes the grizzlies, including the California grizzly, the Mexican grizzly, both of which are considered extinct as subspecies, but also grizzly bears that live in places like Yellowstone. Now, our group has actually done some genetic work that's probably going to be coming out in 2024 that shows basically that California grizzlies were genetically indistinguishable from bears that currently live in Yellowstone and Glacier and other places in, in the Northern Rockies. So the California grizzly is a named subspecies, but really is just a Yellowstone bear that, that happened to live in a, in a warmer, sunnier place. Now, the, the bears that live in Southern Alaska are different in a couple ways. One way is that they live in, a, in an incredibly rich coastal rainforest habitat. Bears that have access to marine resources along the coastline tend to grow much bigger and they tend to have smaller home ranges and they tend to live in much more uh, densely packed populations. And that also affects their social relationships. And just by virtue of that, you'd expect the bears living in super rich habitats in coastal Southern Alaska, including places like Kodiak Island to be much, much bigger, robust animals. But we also know that there are some bears living in coastal Southern Alaska, particularly on the ABC islands, Admiralty, Baranoff, and Chichikov Islands off the coast of southern Alaska, the Panhandle near Juneau, that are particularly unique because they have large, relatively large percentages of polar bear DNA. Now, why would they have polar bear DNA? It's a complex story, but the, the short version of it is that over time, polar bears and brown bears have interbred, have mated, and then diverged. And in some cases, polar bear populations have been subsumed or incorporated into brown bear uh, populations. There's a lot of wrinkles to that, uh, but that's the basic story. And so even though these two animals look really different, they occupy different uh, ecological roles. Uh, one is a marine mammal, a polar bear, and one is a terrestrial mammal, brown bear. They are very closely related. They can mate and produce fertile offspring, uh, at least 
male brown bears and female polar bears. And that is reflected in the genetics of some of those Southern Alaskan bears. And so when folks will say, oh, the Kodiak bears are really different or something like that, they're a little bit different. They live in a different environment. They show it in their physical uh, stature and their robustness. Some of them have more polar bear DNA in them, but they are all brown bears. They're all part of this same circumpolar northern hemisphere species that includes our grizzlies here in the lower 48. You've made the world both bigger and smaller at the same time with grizzlies in terms of the fewer differences than I assumed, but also the ubiquitous nature of their former ranges and even current ranges, thinking about the audacity that someone would want to reintroduce such a, a beast to California. I know that's how it's going to be couched by some of the people who are just going to be shocked. Anybody would want to do this or who is taking it seriously. I think everybody's been on guard for it maybe over the years, but it sure would make it easier to get wolves all over the place if we could get grizzlies, right? The two species present some different issues. Politically, um, yeah. <laughs> politically, and also just in terms of coexistence, living with them. Wolves can be um, a bit tougher to live with if you're trying to raise cattle, if you're trying to raise livestock. And brown bears, I think that the, the main concern, uh, at least in North America, in Europe, has to do with public safety. But I think we have to put these things in perspective. Um, so the, the losses associated with wolves to cattle are quite small um, all over the, the lower 48 states. When it does happen, people get worked up about it. Um, and so we clearly need better ways to um, support people who are living off the land, farmers, and ranchers in those places uh, where wolves are coming back. Because it can be a challenge, particularly if you're in a place where the profit margins are low. And they inherently are raising livestock in the West because... In large parts of the Western U.S., it's just not a very productive landscape compared to the Southeast. Raising livestock in the Southeast is a better business because there's just more forage, it's more productive, it's more year-round. And so folks are, are living on the edge and they need support. But in terms of the bears, let me flip this on your question on its head and just say that when I work with colleagues in Europe, I mentioned that I, I do work in Eastern Europe as well. And... I recently had a colleague come over from Bulgaria and spend some time in the Sierra Nevada looking at potential habitats for brown bears there. And she was just shocked. She was like, this is a gigantic landscape. How can you possibly say that you can't live with some of these bears here? It's absurd. <laughs> and so this is a totally different cultural perspective. But when you have a different cultural perspective on the same species, then you have to start questioning some of your assumptions. And in fact, the cultural part is really the most important part. Here in California, people haven't lived with these animals uh, for 100 years or more in many areas. And one of the challenges, I think, with coexistence is that once you've lost a sense of how to live with animals, it's hard to regain that. It's hard to reestablish a culture uh, of coexistence, of living on the landscape, like you might see in a place like Bulgaria or Romania, in a place like California, where we haven't had that for a long time. And so, although it may seem like an audacious thing, it's really just about doing all the same things that we should be doing to live with black bears, to live with grizzly bears. And so we'll just need to step up our game in a few ways. We'll need to do better in terms of food storage and keeping the animals wild. 
We'll need to do better with monitoring and research and, and a little bit of management. It would be great if we can work on establishing or reestablishing some of those linkages, connecting some disconnected habitats. And a lot of folks are really working hard on that. And, and I think that the bears, living with the bears will seem relatively easy if we can achieve some of those other bigger goals. Yeah. Some people really hate it when you bring up when Europeans are doing things better than us in a wide range of topics. But once again, you've reminded us with far greater density of human population, far less land, we sometimes forget how much we've got here. You really have to go to Europe and find that a lot of things are possible that a lot of people here don't think we have enough room for or tolerance or whatever it might be, but, and also fancy ourselves as the more tolerant and the more flexible on a lot of things when really we're not. We're, we have a weird worldview and the only time we've ever spent was just here within our borders and not around the world like you and many others do. Go work with other people, see how they're doing their thing. And that's really heartening. I don't have any more questions about those hard questions about California and grizzlies. I'm just at the heck yeah stage. Heck yeah, let's do that. So what does that look like going forward? Like you you said earlier, you're really inspired by how quickly things seem to move. That, that means there's a lot of energy coming from the people that you're working with around reintroduction at some point. Why now? When I got started with this back in 2016, it was really an academic research project for me. I was just interested in history, the ecology, the geography, retelling the story that a lot of people had thought had been told. And over the course of that, I learned so many things that really, over time, pushed me to a place where I thought that this was actually possible. And once I realized that, only then did I start to work on this as a, a more of an advocacy project. And so this is a case in which the evidence preceded the conclusion. And I think that's really important for all of your listeners to know, is that this wasn't like, oh, here's a big idea, let's bring these bears back and then find evidence to support it. It was actually the opposite. It's been nearly a decade of research and writing and collaboration, scholarship, really, science, to better understand this, leading to a conclusion that this is something we can totally do. It's not impossible. It's just a choice. And if it is a choice, then I, I know what my decision is, at least personally. What would it look like? I think that these things really um, need to start slow with a lot of conversations. And so that's really where we're at now. Our group really has reformed over the last year. Originally, it was a, a research collaborative, and now I'm working with more of, a, of an advocacy group. And what we've done is we've decided that the, the federal government right now is really focused on the Northern Rockies and North Cascades in terms of grizzly recovery. The grizzly recovery team is really working to try to fulfill the goals of its longstanding recovery plan, a recovery plan that was approved in 1993 and is still slowly moving forward. And so they've got their hands full with that, and that's really what they, they want to try to achieve. But Jack, if the Grizzly Recovery Team fulfilled all of the 1993 recovery goals to their maximum extent, if all the wishes came true under the 1993 recovery plan, then there would be something like 3,000 to maybe 3,500 Grizzlies in the lower 48 U.S. states. In 1800, there were around 50,000. So what we've done is we basically set up a system in which the U.S. government could declare grizzlies fully recovered in the lower 48 states with a population of around 3,000, which is a 94% decline from their 1,800 levels. 
Hmm. Now, the Fish and Wildlife Service believes that would fulfill the op- its obligations under the Endangered Species Act. Legally, it's not really clear whether that is the case, but I think that a lot of people would hear that and say, I don't think that was Congress's intent in 1973 when it passed the law. And so there's been some discussion over the past couple of years, not only about California, but about bringing grizzlies back to the Southwest. And the idea is to just think more broadly and more ambitiously about what we can do for these bears and how about how that can help us advance other conservation goals. And so what are we doing? We're, first of all, continuing with the research. We have a lot left to do. We have so many more questions to ask. We have a lot left to learn about how these animals lived here in the past and how they could live here someday. So that work is ongoing. But in addition, we're doing really two other main things. One thing is that we're starting to work at the state level, talking with institutions, uh, zoos, museums, the state government in California, non-governmental organizations, advocacy groups, and others about this issue and about the potential for bringing these animals back in a way that could be both very exciting, but also really inspiring for other kinds of rewilding projects. And that's a big part of this, is that part of it, this is a project about the bears, right? Of course, but the bear also represents something much more, particularly here in California, where it's the both extinct and, and the state mascot. And so we're working at the state level. But in addition, our group is also um, starting to form uh, an alliance and even um, hopefully over the next year, a coalition with a number of indigenous tribes here in California, uh, many of whom uh, still see the bear as an incredibly important um, kind of uh, cultural ally, uh, a member of their communities from time immemorial, a kind of having a kind of kinship relationship with these animals and seeing the decline of grizzlies and extinction of grizzlies in California, much like the decline and near extinction of bison on the Great Plains as part of a program of annihilation, part of a program of genocide and of of tremendous ongoing injustice that's been inflicted on their communities for hundreds of years now in the state. And those conversations are moving forward. And so we're really starting in our own backyards here to try to talk about this, to make people aware of it, and to start to plan for reestablishing that culture of coexistence that could enable us to live with these animals here. You brought up a point I don't hear many people talking about much at all. If you're just using the cursory level, the surface level, like on social media and emails and and newsletters from different organizations, people touch on the importance of the roles that large predators play in the wider ecosystem. And just outside of we need wolves or we need grizzly bears. But how many? When you said that Fish and Wildlife would consider the grizzly recovered with around 3,000 bears in the entire lower 48, that which is a 94, you said a 94% decline. Um, if we were looking at it from an ecological perspective, the role that grizzlies play on the landscape, it's I'm sure there are studies that have been done how much radically changed California is, not just because of people building things and highways and stuff and agriculture, but the loss of the grizzly has to have had some kind of an ecological effect. It's weird that we have an an agency that only looks at it from a 94%, if we can just get it back to a 94% decline, then we will have considered our job done. But if there's an ecological role, which there is, of grizzly bears, then if you're reintroducing them in certain places, there's got to be a grizzly per square mile kind of 
factoring in this, right? If we're if we were actually concerned with the ecological ramifications, not just the surface, hey, we had grizzlies, we need grizzlies back. So there's a couple issues there, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head actually with both of them. So one is this issue of recovery. So under the Endangered Species Act, the law, the statute does not define what recovery means. And I think that this is, except in the broadest possible in, ter- in terms of something like unlikely to become endangered in the foreseeable future again. So the result of that is that recovery, the definition of recovery was delegated to recovery plans, which were supposed to be produced for each listed species. And that has been uh, done to more or less of an extent over the years. The service fell behind for a long time with it, but then was pushed uh, to catch up. And so uh, the recovery plans are really what defines recovery itself. And, and because of this, unfortunately, uh, recovery plans like the 1993 Grizzly Recovery Plan have tended to define recovery in the most minimalistic possible terms. And so instead of defining recovery as occupying a significant portion of its former range or serving some ecological functional role, or, and this is a little bit more of a kind of current perspective, maybe some environmental justice concerns related to this. Instead of doing any of that, what the recovery plans have often done is define recovery in terms of a minimum viable population. Now, a minimum viable population, in my view, does not constitute recovery, but the argument of the federal government has often been that all we need to do is make sure that the species doesn't disappear, and that constitutes recovery. That's certainly the case for grizzlies, and it's the case for a number of other species, and that's something that I think uh, a lot of conservationists should not accept. And it's the premise of some of the things that I'm working on with folks is that's insufficient, particularly in an age of dramatic and rapid ecological and social and climate change. The second issue has to do with the ecological roles. There's been a tremendous amount of debate about what are in fact the roles that top carnivores like wolves play in ecosystems. There are some systems in which the roles of large carnivores are very clear like, for example, Pacific sea otters and kelp forest ecosystems, they absolutely clearly play a keystone species role. With wolves, they may in some cases, but it's a bit more variable depending on a variety of factors. Grizzly bears are a bit different. And the reason they're a bit different is because it is incorrect, I would say, to call them top predators. Part of our work was to try to understand what grizzlies ate in California. We used a technique called stable isotope analysis to do it. We have a paper that will be coming out in the next year on this. And what we found is that prior to European colonization, grizzly bears in California were about 80 to 85% vegetarian, herbivorous. Now that may surprise uh, many of your listeners, but actually that's quite similar to grizzly bears in a lot of other regions and certainly brown bears in uh, other parts of the world including in many Mediterranean-style ecosystems in Europe, where they're largely herbivorous. So brown bears are omnivores. They will eat meat if they have the opportunity, of course, but they subsist generally on uh, mostly plant matter. So they're actually not uh, shaping ecosystems primarily by hunting and killing other animals, but they shape ecosystems in a bunch of other ways. 
And so I think two of the most important ways, let's say maybe three of the most important ways. One is by transferring nutrients. This is most obvious in marine systems and in areas where there are lots of salmon, where bears will take fish out of the stream, they'll end up on the shore, other animals will scavenge them on the shore, and then the nutrients that come from those fish will be distributed throughout the forest. So nutrient transfer, that's a really important one. The second one has to do with seed dispersal. Bears eat a tremendous amount of fruits and berries and grasses and things like this, and they disperse seeds throughout the forest. And there is some evidence, although hard to get to in a direct way, that the loss of large animals like grizzly bears is starting to profoundly shape the distribution of plants in forests in places like California as the ecological memory of that seed dispersal in previous generations of plants starts to fade away as we get further and further away from the disappearance of those animals. And then the third way that uh, grizzly bears probably affect ecosystems is by shaping the behavior of other animals. And so some animals will follow them, for example, to scavenge on, on carcasses. Other animals will be displaced from scavenging or from kills that they've made. So it is possible in some areas that we see this in Yellowstone, that wolves that kill an elk, grizzly bear comes along, kicks the wolves off the elk, and then the wolves have to go and, and hunt some more and the bear will monopolize the, the carcass. Uh, and in other cases, we have animals obviously avoiding uh, grizzly bears. And so the very presence of these animals in the habitat shapes the behavior of other animals. And so these are things that are a little bit hard to see. They're a little bit intangible. They're a little bit hard to wrap your mind around, but cumulatively, they can be incredibly important over time. I think one service that was already performed that I think is going to support your work is there's a lot of similarities in the arguments that are made successfully now for the reintroduction of wolves, as you're mentioning now with grizzlies. So it's not like people haven't heard that argument before and haven't had plenty of chances to be schooled in what it means and changing the course of rivers and stuff. That's almost reached a mythical status. <laughs> it seems like you've got some advantages here that the wolf reintroduction folks didn't have in the beginning in terms of PR alone. Do you think that's going to help with this? There are some, it seems like there's some similarities in the way that this maybe fight or this effort, let's not call it a fight until it is, this effort goes forward. Yeah, I mean, I should say that we're just getting started here, but one of the first, really actually the first peer-reviewed publication that our group put out, uh, so we started in 2016 and, you know, academia moves slowly, uh, everything takes a long time. Our first publication came out in 2019 and it was actually a, um, a survey of people in California. We surveyed almost a thousand people by phone. And uh, our, our goal was to try to understand what people knew and what they thought about grizzly bears. And the two kind of big take-home uh, messages on this were, one, that only about 25% of Californians knew that grizzlies were currently extinct in the state. About 50% mm. weren't sure, and about 25% were pretty sure that they are here. So that means that there are something like 30 million people in California who um, haven't even been introduced to the first thing about this story. They don't know any, maybe they wear the bear on their hat or their coffee mug or something, 
but they don't really even know the first thing about this story. And so there's a lot of opportunity there, I think, for um, education and engagement around that. But then an interesting thing was that this, the second thing that we learned is that when people were told, actually, grizzly bears have been extinct in California for, for almost a century, what people said in response was about two thirds of them, I believe, said that they would likely support or at least mildly support uh, the idea of bringing them back. And so I, I think that when told that people have driven an animal to extinction, especially an animal that people can identify with like a bear, uh, without even really needing to think through the, the challenges and complexities of the issue, uh, I think a lot of people, their their gut reaction is that's wrong and something should be done about it. So that's a pretty good place to, to start. As far as the wolf thing goes, this can cut both ways. Um, wolves can help uh, people understand the role uh, of large animals like this on the landscape and how important they are. On the other hand, in Idaho, where wolves really started to return in the mid-1990s, the grizzly recovery team has been unable to reestablish grizzly bears in the Bitterroot Mountains in central Idaho, in part because of resistance from the state that is related to some resentment there about how the whole wolf uh, recovery has, has gone down over mm. the last uh, 25 to 30 years. And so this can cut both ways. I think the fact that there are wolves now in central California um, means that we have a lot of work to do in order to make sure that becomes positive experience for people and not a negative one. Uh, and so wolves can be a, a stepping stone in that way. But I guess one, one other thing I'd just like to mention is that the ecological argument is important, but it's also a functionalist one. And it says that if an animal serves a function that humans value, then it's maybe worthy of a place in the landscape. And I'm not sure that I agree with that. I believe that these animals have an inherent value to it in and of themselves. I think that indigenous traditions and ways of knowing understand that in complex and nuanced ways. I think that philosophers have recognized that for a long time. And I think that that if the ecological functionalist argument that it served a certain purpose and therefore deserves a place is the only one, then maybe it's time that we've expanded that to a, a broader environmental ethic that uh, places value on native species in and of themselves for what they bring, the values that they bring to the community, to the ecosystem, to people, the intangible values of inspiration and awareness. And all of these things can be equally important as just what they do out there in the ecosystem. You're singing Dave Foreman's song there. That's <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'm very much more excited now than I was. It doesn't seem academic as much as it used to. And it doesn't seem implausible at all like it really used to. All of us, pretty much everybody alive has grown up <laughs> without grizzly bears in California. And um, that ecological amnesia, it, it can happen in the wild, but it also has happened greatly to us. And our values change based on things we never had a chance to love or have any real world contact with, which is why Dave was such a big proponent of getting people out, even if it was threatening to love some places to death, they're never going to fight for a place or a critter that they've never met or been in the presence of or had any profound impact being around. I, my, I do ecological work, I do geographical work, but I'm also an environmental historian. 
And one thing I learned from studying history, which turns out to be really important when you're talking about a species that's been gone for a hundred years. Yeah. One of the things I learned is to be suspicious of claims of inevitability. And the reason for that is because what historians know, what you realize when you understand history is that very few things are actually inevitable. Many things happen by accident. There's contingency, there's chance. Things could have happened differently and they could happen differently. The people in the past didn't know what was going to come next any more than we do today. And so understanding that, I think for me, has really opened me up to understanding that the idea that grizzlies going extinct in California was inevitable and bringing them back is impossible is just a story. Mm. And for me, I think one of the most important parts of this is to be able to see those things as stories and to be able to come up with new stories, better stories, more inspiring stories, and frankly, stories that are more based in science, as well as uh, indigenous knowledge and wisdom uh, and a variety of other insights that we can bring to bear. And for me, um, that's something I, I would really love for folks to to reflect on is the nature of the stories we tell and how we can come up with better ones. But you know, 2024 is a big year. 2024 will be the 100th anniversary of the last credible sighting of a grizzly bear in California. And so as part of this, the group that I'm working with is doing a lot of things. We're working with zoos, we're working with museums, we're working with the State Fish and Game Commission, we're working with a variety of other entities to over the next several months, develop a program of events that are going to highlight the story, highlight the story of the California grizzly and connect it to larger themes of rewilding that are the exact issues that you talk about here on this show. And so what I would say is for folks who are interested in the research, go and check out the Cal Grizzly website that we have online, calgrizzly.com. Uh, com, uh, online that just shows some of the research that we've been doing. Look out over the next several months for a, a new web presence uh, under the California Grizzly Alliance that we're going to be rolling out in preparation for this 2024 landmark year. And then follow that for updates to the events that are going to be going on in 2024 as we really officially launch this campaign to do what very recently was deemed impossible but hopefully increasingly will be deemed inevitable, which is to bring the California grizzly back as part of a much bigger rewilding vision. This is awesome. I'm super excited. Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth podcast. And I want to have you back. As soon as these things start to kick off, we're going to need you. You're our spokesperson now. We've adopted you. We're going to need to know not only updates on how everything's going, but also addendums to the things that we can do to help you on this mission. I, I, I loved being a part of this. It's, it's great to, to chat. Um, I love what you do here. I'm glad to be a member of the tribe. And hey, anytime you want to talk about grizzly bears, just give me a call. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.